Well, brothers and sisters, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Just stand together as we read two verses of scripture. Uh, These two verses come from the various Bible readings we've taken this morning. The first from Genesis chapter 15 where we've commented on Abraham's fear and God's word to him. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then in Luke, the reading in which Jesus expresses the agony of his soul. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Our gracious Father, it is beyond any mere human man to proclaim the great eternities of your gospel and we confess that we need your Holy Spirit's presence this morning for the preaching as much as the hearing and we pray, our Father, that you would be gracious to us lift your countenance upon us in this way and grant us the blessing of hearing your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, As I said this morning, we'll be turning our attention primarily to the passage in Genesis chapter 15. And that's a picture of what this passage looks like. And if you want to know how much of this passage we're going to address today, if you take one small snowflake from the top of that iceberg, that's about how far we'll get in what is a momentous passage, a wonderful, deep portion of God's Word. And I would to the Lord that there would be such a movement of his spirit amongst the churches that we would long to understand, that we would desist from being kindergarten people who want simply to have a Sunday school word given to us and pick up a morsel to take away when what the church is called to do is to devote itself to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread not something on the periphery of our lives, but as the very centre and core of our existence, to devote ourselves to that. And that, beloved, is one of the marks of what has often been called revival in other parts of the world, that there is such a hunger engendered for God's word that people cannot not hear and they long and long for more. And so as we come to this passage in Genesis 15 today, I ask you to bear with me because I'm not going to treat you as Sunday school children or kindergartners. I'm going to ask that you rise up to actually hear something that the Lord has in this passage. 
But even having spent some time on it, we will only have barely begun to pick the first surface of the first snowflake of the huge iceberg that you find in Genesis chapter 15. So, consider that a warning. Now, one thing we're told never to do is this. We are told never to put all your eggs in one basket. And the reason we're told not to put all our eggs in one basket is that this can happen. Either you can trip and stumble or someone else can bump into you or there can be some accident of history, some tectonic movements of the plates of the Earth's crust and all the eggs that you put into the one basket end up broken around your feet and you think that's a bad yoke and you discover it's not all white after all. But we're told repeatedly, don't put all your eggs into one basket. Spread the risk. Make sure that you've got alternatives. If plan A doesn't work, make sure there's plan B and if plan B doesn't work, make sure you've got plan C and if plan C doesn't work, make sure you've got an exit. Well, we've got a question raised for us in the Genesis 15 passage and without wanting to be irreverent, there are elements in this passage and other parts of the Bible which make both Abraham and God look like basket cases because from one point of view, each of them has put all of their eggs in one basket. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, you read of God's first encounter with Abraham and the context of this is really important because from Genesis chapter 3 where you read of the entrance of human sin into the world through to Genesis chapter 11 the story has been of wickedness and corruption and murder and greed and violence and deceit and it culminates in Genesis chapter 11 with a tower building exercise, the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? Have you heard that? And in the Tower of Babel you get a picture of the whole of humanity arrayed in all of its power in rebellion against God, repeating the sin of Genesis chapter 3, saying we will be as God, we will topple God from his throne, we will reach a tower that... We will build a tower which reaches up to heaven. We will create a name for ourselves. We will be as God. So all of those millennia of human generations where wickedness and sin and evil have increased and increased, at the end of Genesis 11 you think, well, what's the Lord going to do now? Is he going to send a flood like he did in Genesis chapter 6? Or is he going to call down fire from heaven if he's not going to destroy them by a flood? What's he going to do in the face of all that human rebellion? And the answer is God puts all his eggs in one very frail old basket called Abram. This man who was an idol worshipper in Ur of the Chaldees, man who at the age of 75 or thereabouts was probably well into his pensionable years, a man who was childless and in that culture and in that time 
to be childless and to not have an heir was a disastrous situation. And God chooses this man not because any inherent righteousness in Abraham, he chooses him to display the greatness of his own glory. And he puts all of his eggs into that one basket. All of the promises of blessing to the nations. All of the power to turn that rebellion into love. Everything that would reverse the wickedness and horror of human evil, he chooses Abraham and he says, this is now my vessel in response to human wickedness generation after generation, millennia after millennia, my response is to choose a 75-year-old man on whom the hope of the whole world will hinge. The other nations hearing this story thought, ah, Israel's God is a basket case. But Abraham, from his point of view, at this stage he was still called Abram, also from the world's point of view, looked like a bit of a basket case. And to his own mind, he must have thought, what have I done? Because in Genesis chapter 14, there's the story of how Abraham rescues his nephew Lot and as well as that, he defeats some bad guys who have been terrorising the neighbourhood. And the king's who are beneficiaries of Abraham's action, offer him a king's ransom. And he says, no. Like, imagine this. I don't know how old he was by then, but he was certainly older than 75. He's a nomad. The only inheritance he's got are his flocks, He has quite a company of people travelling with him who are dependent on him, some hundreds of people. He has no earthly security. He's left his city. He doesn't own one plot of land. His existence since he's left the great cosmopolitan capital of Ur of the Chaldees, his existence has been wandering out the back of beyond somewhere, beyond Longreach, you know. And here someone offers him untold wealth and he says no. I don't think it's any coincidence that the very next word in Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 is do not fear Abraham. Have you ever taken a decision in faith where you know that you have done something which the Lord has wanted you to do And all of the rest of the world looks on and thinks, you, Ning Nong, what are you doing? Where somehow you have walked away from the thing which everyone says is the most sensible, right, prudent, judicial course of action, where you spread your risk, where you don't put all your eggs in one basket, where you've got a few alternatives, where you can keep building your tower. You've walked away from it all. And about three minutes after you've done it, something goes off in your mind in the depths of your gut which says, oh my goodness me, what have I done? And God's response is, don't fear Abraham, don't fear. I am your shield, 
and I am your reward. Your reward will be very great. And then he goes on, that is God goes on to confirm his covenant with Abraham. Now covenant's not a word we talk about too much probably but a covenant is not like one of our contracts. Uh, A contract, the, the Hebrew word berit can be used for a covenant or an agreement or a contract between two people. If you're going to buy a piece of land for example or a house or a car, you enter into a contractual arrangement and if you do that then they do this and if you keep your repayments you can keep the car and if you don't keep your repayments then they can do this and but it's a mutually agreed situation. Would that be true? A mutually agreed sort of horizontal relationship. But when we're talking about the covenant of God, it's not like one of those contracts that we enter into. It's different in these ways because God makes all the promises here. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17 and in Genesis 22, where all of the covenant arrangements are spelled out, Abraham is promising nothing. Abraham receives everything and this is the hallmark of God's covenant. He makes the promises and then he tells you what the terms are going to be. Abraham doesn't get a chance to say, well, I'd like clause A and B left in but I'd like to delete clause C and D God says, this is the way it's going to be, Abraham. The promises that I make to you, you elderly, infertile, frail, nomadic pauper, are these. Kings are going to come from you. Nations will be blessed because of you. You will have more descendants than you can count. And the whole world is going to rejoice because of the offspring who comes through your line. Well, Abraham thinks God's a basket case. How can he do that to me? And without wanting to be insensitive, look at my wife. I mean, it takes two to tango and she's as old as I am. Well, God did something that no human being could do. He fulfilled the promises. You know the story. And that's where we get the names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from Jacob, all of the tribes of Israel and so forth. But God stipulates the terms. He says, this is the way it's going to be. This is where you're going to be for how many years. This is what's going to happen. And then God guarantees it. Now, here's a big difference. If you want to borrow some money to buy a house or buy a car, somehow you have to guarantee that. Would that be true? Don't Your understanding of contract in that way has nothing to do with God's covenant. Abraham doesn't have to guarantee this, nor Isaac nor Jacob. God himself guarantees his covenant. It's not a mutual agreement. It's just a gracious gift out of the blue to someone who doesn't deserve it and who receives everything solely by the mercy of God.
But then at the end of the passage you read something quite strange. Do you remember in Genesis 15 this morning we read about animals being slaughtered and darkness coming? Do you remember that in the reading? We remember about the animals being split in two. Do you remember that? And if you were awake and not thinking about whether the toast was burnt or not this morning for brekkie, you must have thought, what in the world is that about? What does it mean? Behind this lies a big picture. In some Old Testament passages, you read of people not making a covenant but cutting, cutting a covenant. And God commands Abraham to cut a covenant by literally cutting these animals. And there's a list of the animals that he's commanded to sacrifice and we could barely believe the amount of blood and gore that must have been involved in that but to kill them and then to split them down the middle and then to lay them open. Now behind this was an arrangement in the olden uh, ancient days which meant this. He is born, I can speak to him, I can use him as an example. Vaughan and I enter into an agreement to buy a motorbike for example. Vaughan says, you can use this bike provided you pay me X amount of dollars every week to use it. And then he says, just come out the back. And then he gets the pet rabbit and a guinea pig and the budgie, slaughters them, splits them open, puts them on one side of the lawn and the other and he says, now we're going to walk between these pieces and I think, I'm not sure I want to be here. But the idea behind that was to say each as they walked between the pieces if you back out on this deal or if I back out on this deal we can do to each other what we've done to these animals. Like we're not talking about a slap on the wrist here if we renege. I'm going to tear your limb from limb if you renege from this deal. Now, It's only an illustration, I don't even ride a motorbike. My wife on the other hand. Now, that's what's behind this. Something which indicates the utter seriousness of the covenant which God is establishing, the unchangeable and inviolable nature of it, the enduring importance attached to it, Now, anyone reading this from their ancient Old Testament background, any one of Abraham's compatriots or friends would expect the next thing to happen. They would expect God in some form to walk together down through this corridor of blood with Abraham next to him. As if to say, you just keep in line Abraham or this is going to happen to you. But what happens is God puts Abraham to sleep. 
and in his mind's eye he sees someone walking between these pieces. He sees a flaming fire pot which they used to use to carry from one encampment to another and a flaming torch which I'd put into the fire pot then to light the fire in the next place. So the two are one but the one are not the same. And as he comes in his mind's eye to see what's happening, he's not present. God walks through the bloody corridor. God gets his garments covered in blood. God eventually or essentially says to Abraham, Abraham, if you screw this covenant up, I'll tear my own flesh and blood to keep it. Abraham, I am so concerned to bring the blessing of my son to the nations and to use you as the channel by which it will come that I'm not going to leave one jot or tittle of this covenant in your hands because I know that you can't do it. I know that morally you're too frail and physically you're too weak and mentally and emotionally you've been too screwed up from decades of idolatry. You can't do it. But this covenant is so essential and so important and so everlasting that if there's ever a transgression of this covenant, I will tear myself apart. Well, that's what God does. That's why you've got a cross. That's why you've got a lamb called Jesus Christ. So God comes riding on a donkey generation after generation, millennia after millennia, wickedness, transgression, sin, tower building, bitterness, small-mindedness, weakness, hypocrisy, killing the prophets, stoning those whom he'd sent. God comes. He says... I said I would keep this covenant and I never break my word. I said that if this covenant failed because of the failures of the human side, I would not let the covenant fall to pieces. So God came. And as he came, he wept. And he wept over Jerusalem as he weeps over you and me. As he weeps over our bitterness and our hardness of heart and our pettiness of spirit and our small-mindedness and our selfishness and our unwillingness to engage with God. With our desire to have God just on the little side in a shelf in some holy corner without him being the centre and soul of our lives. He comes and he weeps and he looks at the church and he weeps and he looks at us and he says to us, 
I have made a covenant with my beloved. I have given them my word and I will make sure that all of their bitter, small-minded pettiness doesn't stop my blessing. So he goes to the cross weeping. But he goes to the cross. And they came to the place called the skull and there they crucified him. And under the terms of the Roman authorities at the time and under the terms of the religious leaders of the day, if you had eyes to see it, it's a reenactment of Genesis 15. It's God passing through the corridors of blood. It's God experiencing death in his own soul. It's God rending himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that the blessing he's promised to you and to me would not be stopped. Not even by our foolishness. Not even by the fact that it's us who's tripped up and spilt the eggs and broken them. Nothing will stop him. So, beloved, I don't know what that says to you today. And it's always very difficult to apply something which is so clearly gospel. But perhaps to say two things. Firstly, if fear is the dominant note in your life, hear what God says to Abraham. Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. If fear is the dominant note in your life, that fear will always drive you to look at yourself and to see if you can fulfil your side of the bargain and you'll always come up wanting and I can only say to you in Jesus' name, look away from the fear because faith is greater. It's never been about you. It's never been about how good you could be or how steadfast your love would be or how secure your piety and devotion could make you. It's always been about him. So look away from the fear for faith is greater. And the second thing is this. Do you weep? And I hope you do. Do you weep over the church? Do you think everything's just hunky-dory with the Christian world? Do you think everything's hunky-dory with the Lutheran church? You think all the ducks are in a row and everything's nice? Well, I can only say to you, you haven't begun the journey of the Spirit. But if you weep over the church, if you weep over Jerusalem, if you weep over the houses that are around us, we've been away on holidays and we flew over Melbourne on the way in and then stuck there for a long time because of thunderstorms. Acre after acre after acre, hectare after hectare of houses spreading out as far as the eye can see and you think, where is there a word for Australia? 
Or were we just going to be content with football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars? Where is there a gospel? Well, if that weeping is in your heart for the nation, if that weeping is in your heart for the church, then be assured that God will satisfy the need that that weeping speaks of because he's made a covenant and through this man, dead, buried, crucified and raised, God has promised he would bless the nations and he will. And by God's grace, may he use us as part of that blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, who can tell the wondrous story of the Christ who died for us? Who can tell what it meant for you? Our Father, to see your Son abandoned, who can tell what it meant for him? But Father, that is our hope and our security and our life. And we pray by your Spirit's power you may cause us to look up and look out and to flow in the blessing of your Son. Cause us to be filled with your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.